0: Well, good morning. morning. We are going to continue in our worship this morning as we continue in our summer series in the Psalms with King David. We're in Psalm 52. So if you would turn to Psalm 52 for the reading of God's word. And if you would stand, we stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy and inspired word. This is Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. Selah. Your word, you love all words that devour, O oh deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah, so that the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who had not set God as his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his destruction. But as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will hope on your name for it is good in the presence of your holy ones. Heavenly Father, we pray that you are blessed by the reading of your word. You may be seated. So over the last two weeks in Psalm 51, we saw the raw, unfiltered agony of King David. And there's no equal in the Psalter to Psalm 51, or really no equal in all of Scripture, in showing what the world will never see and what the world will never understand. And that is the real turmoil in the soul of the converted man who is being crushed spiritually beneath the weight of his own sin. And that is what makes Psalm 51 so beautiful and so terrifying at the same time, because every believer who has come to the end of themselves and cried out for mercy before a holy and righteous God sees themselves in David's agony when he cried against you, you only, I have sinned. The agony of conviction by the Holy Spirit is the touchstone of our salvation. Marking the moment of our regeneration, new life from the dead, when we became new creations in Christ, a complete and total transformation from the darkness to the light, from the dead to the living. And that only comes through the deep well of agony. When we as David and Isaiah and Job, to name a few, Said, "I am unclean, Lord, cleanse me." But not only does this God-giving revelation mark the moment of our transfer, of our salvation, but it is the very well of agony that we are drawn back to time and time again as our in our walk as believers under the discipline and instruction of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we can so relate to the pain expressed by the humble. And contrite David. And yet at the same time we rejoice in what God is doing in David. Knowing that this is a man being conformed to the image of Christ. And it all comes through the valley of the shadow of death. The murder of Uriah. The sin of Bathsheba. The ultimate death of their child. And all of it tragedy upon tragedy. Decreed by God why? To make David complete spiritually. That is the purpose of tribulation and trouble. And that's what makes the position of Psalm 52, following Psalm 51, so interesting. Because we see the broken man of Psalm 51 emerges the faithful man in Psalm 52. As if David's life is a living example of the first chapter of James, which reads, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. David, King David, is brought low, shown in Psalm 51, disciplined for his sin by a father who loves him. To then be able to handle in faith, not only the the life of a hunted fugitive, but also the tragedy of mass murder brought about by the wicked Doeg and King Saul in Psalm 52. Here is the God-given repentance of a king in Psalm 51, followed by the God-given faith of a fugitive in Psalm 52. The palace king brought low in one psalm, the fugitive king raised up in faith in the next. And both are manifest in David in these psalms. One marked by repentance, the other one marked by faith. For repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, both divinely granted to us by the Father. One cannot truly believe unless he repents, and one cannot truly repent unless he believes. It is a package deal, but understand, it is not faith plus repentance that saves. It is a repentant faith, and that is the heart of David revealed in these psalms. And that, whether we recognize it or not, is the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ. That's what distinguishes the saved from the unsaved. You know, when the Titanic set sail from Ireland in 1912, all classes of people were aboard. There were wealthy people, famous people, educated people. There were illiterate people, poor people in steerage. But within hours after Titanic sunk, the cruise line back in New York City listed only two classes of people. The saved and the lost. And that is the only distinction that matters for eternity, isn't it? The saved, like David, are marked by repentant faith. They are the steadfast green olive trees in the house of God, as recorded in verse 8 of Psalm 52. The picture here being one of refuge, of security, and of care under the loving kindness of God. But what about the lost? What about their security? What about their care? Look at verse 5. They are broken down, snatched up, torn away, uprooted. You see, the key to understanding Psalm 52 is seeing that this is a message of two trees. One broken down in destruction, the other one flourishing in faith. Against the backdrop of some very dark days for David, the darkest days of his life. In light of the agony of Psalm 51, you would think that things couldn't get worse for David, but they do. Remember, Psalm 52 is a psalm of lament, composed by David to reflect on the loving kindness of God. But to really unpack this psalm, we must understand the historical background and the great tragedy and despair from which this psalm was forged, some of which is revealed in the title, which reads, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, before we get into the events surrounding Ahimelech and Doeg, let's first consider just how low David has fallen when he enters the house of Ahimelech. Remember, David is a national hero. He had fame for striking down Goliath. He was also the national musician. He was first hired to be an armor bearer for King Saul. He became King Saul's greatest general. Crushing the Philistines in battle after battle. He played the harp for Saul. King Saul truly loved David. He married King Saul's daughter. He played the harp for Saul. His best friend was King Saul's son, Jonathan. He lived at the king's palace. He ate at the king's table. He was the anointed king to replace Saul. The women of Jerusalem even sung of David. They sang, Saul has struck his thousands... And David, his tens of thousands. He was the warrior king of Israel. But suddenly everything changed. An evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. And in, in his jealous anger, he burned toward David. And before David knows it, he's a fugitive, fleeing Jerusalem. And that's where we find him. Entering the city of Nob, not as a conqueror, but as a criminal. With a shoot to kill Warren on his head. From his father-in-law, King Saul, the king, he is estranged from his wife. He has no army to lead, no prospects, no job, no weapons, and no food. David is on the run with a ragtag group, and he has lost everything. David is at rock bottom. His world turned upside down. His circumstances are dire as he enters Nob, the city of the priests. And with that, please turn with me to 1 Samuel. And we're going to camp out here. So keep your finger here at 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at two chapters here, 21 and 22. We've got to get this background. So 1 Samuel 21, we're going to start in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me with a matter, and he has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending you and with which I have commanded you. And I have directed young men to a certain place. So now what you have on on hand, give five loaves of bread into my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before Yahweh, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there detained before Yahweh, And his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And as David said to Himelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons in my hand, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the king said, the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take it for yourself, take it. For there's no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now, don't worry. We're not going to exegete all of 1 Samuel 22, or 21 and 22. But for background, we need to make some observations here. Nob is located one mile north of Jerusalem, just over the hill from the Mount of Olives. You remember the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed, where Jesus was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nab was called the City of Priests because that's where a large number of priests and their families lived. Remember, the first temple had not been built, Solomon's temple. And Nob was where the tabernacle was, really the portable temple. That's where it was located. It's a very important religious city to Israel. And it is here that David coincidentally ends up in the spiritual center of this fledgling nation. And it is here in Nob that a gracious priest named Ahimelech provides David and his gang with bread and with at least one weapon. Now, the bread Heimlich offers is the consecrated bread. It's called the show bread. It's also called the the bread of presence. In the tabernacle, they'd have 12 loaves of bread lined up as a symbolic reminder that God is the provider of your bread. And the bread stash would be replaced every seven days to keep the symbol fresh. But once it's taken out of the presence of the Lord, it could be consumed by the priest. That's the bread that David and his men consumed. Now, this very event is mentioned by Jesus in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus was rebuking, remember, the strict Sabbatarian Pharisees who had made the Sabbath oppressive and burdensome. Jesus was saying, I can eat whatever I want. I can do whatever I want, especially on the Sabbath, because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark 2 records, and he said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abiathar? the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, Ahimelech the priest, he's really at a disadvantage here. He, not knowing the and turmoil stirred up by King Saul against David, after all, no one was more loyal to King Saul than David was. So Ahimelech has no choice. He has to believe David when David tells him he's on a secret mission sent by King Saul. So out of the kindness of his heart, Ahimelech doesn't stand on ceremony, but rather out of compassion and concern for David, gives him the only food available in the house of God, the showbread. Also, Ahimelech gives David the very sword used to hack off Goliath's head. The gifting of the sword by Ahimelech to David would play prominently in Doeg's coming deception. After all, Doeg was there, and he heard everything. Look back at 1 Samuel 21, verse 7. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Now, Doeg the Edomite. Now, Edomites were the good-for-nothing descendants of the good-for-nothing Esau. And the good-for-nothing Doeg... He's going to hold this bit of intel until the perfect time. And that time came about when Saul was in a fit of paranoia and was lashing out. He was accusing everyone of conspiring with David against him. Look ahead to 1 Samuel 22, verses 8 through 10, 1 Samuel 22. For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who reveals in my ear when my son cuts a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's none of you who is sorry for me or reveals in my ear that my son has caused my servant to rise up against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he asked of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. You know, Doeg knew. Doeg knew the tragic impact, his insinuation of a supposed brewing insurrection from David and the priests of Nob. He knew what kind of impact that would have on King Saul in his instability. So Doeg capitalizes on the generosity offered by Himelech, surely spinning those 12 loaves of stale bread and that single sword and a bunch of unarmed priests into a deadly threat to the nation of Israel. And Saul took the bait in his paranoia. Look back at First Samuel 22, verse 11. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, and the priests who were in Nob. And all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered and said, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? And that you have given him bread and a sword and have asked of God on his behalf so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Now listen to this answer by Himelech. This, this is a godly man. Himelech says, answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is the captain over your garden, is honored in your house. Did I just begin to ask of God on his behalf today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing, great or small, of this whole affair. That's a great answer. That's an honest answer. But you see, King Saul had that evil spirit in him, didn't he? Listen how King Saul responds. The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, and all your father's household. As a result of Doeg's deception, David's secret mission to Nob ends up implicating the innocent priest of Himalek and all his household and 85 priests in the whole town of Nob as conspirators against King Saul. So David's tragic days on the run would take an even darker turn. Look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 17. And the king said to the guards who were standing by him, turn around and put the priests of Yahweh to death because their hand also is with David because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it in my ears. But the servants of the king were not willing to send forth their hands to fall upon the priests of Yahweh. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he put to death that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. So he struck the He struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, infants and nursing babies, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Notice that Saul's guards, at the risk of their own lives, were not willing to slaughter innocent priests, but not Doeg, the deceiver. He steps forward to murder innocent, unarmed priests and their families, women and children, and all the living in Nob. Evil of this magnitude is shocking to our ears. Now, amazingly, David takes full responsibility of this tragic loss in the city of Nob. He makes confession to the one survivor of the slaughter, Abiathar, who had fled to David. Look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of Yahweh. And David sent, said to Abiathar, I knew that on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, It is I who have turned against every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks you lo- your life. For you are safe with me. David's humility and compassion towards Abiathar here, here in his darkest hour reveals the good works of repentance Uh, one would expect from a man of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. David is no hypocrite here, showing the grace and mercy and loving kindness to Abiathar. And now before we move to our text today, Psalm 52, let's make one more observation that reveals more of the good fruit of repentance from David. David. In Nob, David asks Ahimelech for the sword of Goliath. So how did the sword of Goliath get there? In Nob is a museum piece. I mean, David won it fair and square. To the victors go the spoils, right? David's, the sword of of Goliath, was the greatest, most coveted trophy of victory in the entire nation. It was one of the most incredible weapons of war Of the day, especially since the metal that was used was far superior than the metal that was used in the Israelite swords. Yet he didn't covet it. David didn't covet the glory that came with it. So the sword of Goliath was put on display in the tabernacle with the priests of Nob because David felt the trophies of his life belonged to God. David gives God the sword and thus gives the honor and credit to him. He coveted not the things of this world, did you know David had amassed a million talents of silver? That's 60 million pounds of silver. And he amassed 100,000 talents of gold. That's 6 million pounds of gold he amassed in his lifetime. This is how Solomon was able to finance and decorate the first temple. David dedicated all these treasures to the Lord. He truly was a man after God's own heart. And now we spend half our time there. Let's, uh, let's move to Psalm 52, which is actually our text for today. My hope is you're going to see this psalm with... This is an amazing psalm. I hope you see it with new eyes, with that background. Because these two trees are going to stand out even more distinctly. First, we're going to look at the withering tree of the wicked in, in Doeg. And then we're going to look at the flourishing tree of the faithful in King David. One is lost, the other is saved. So we're back to our intro to the psalm when it reads, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now verse 1, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Now straight off, you may notice David begins this psalm by addressing the evil Doeg calling out his evil deeds here in verse 1. Then he calls out his perverse words in verses 2 through 4. First, David refers to Doeg boasting of his evil deeds and then mocks him as, Oh, mighty man. But there's only one mighty man in this psalm, isn't there? And it's not Doeg. The true mighty man of this psalm is the one who has killed his tens of thousands against well-armed military fighting men not unarmed, defenseless priests and women and children and infants and nursing babies. But what faith we see in David here. Remember, David's a warrior. and He doesn't seek to vanquish Doeg himself, but rather, what does he do? He puts his faith in the loving kindness of God. David is saying the eternal mercy of God trumps your despicable acts of murder. You can slaughter his priests, but you won't stop the Lord and his love For his people. So at his lowest point, a fugitive on the run, his own world shattered, the priests and the people of Nob slaughtered as a result of David's own involvement. And instead of David crying, Woe is me, or wanting to seek personal revenge, David's faith here is unshakable. And he appeals to the loving kindness of God that endures all day long, as the verse indicates. David has faith in God's loyal, steadfast love for his people, knowing God always wins in the end. Knowing the vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. Now, verses 2 through 4, David calls out Doeg's perverse tongue. It reads, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. Falsehood more than speaking what is right. Selah, you love all words that devour Oh, deceitful tongue. So, why such a focus on David, on the words of Doeg? Because David knows it was the deception from Doeg's mouth that took an innocent visit by David to Ahimelech and spun it into a resurrection. David is saying Doeg's malicious words were carefully crafted and timed to incite King Saul. You see, Doeg needed Saul's top cover before he could carry out his slaughter. And it was Doeg's wicked tongue used as a weapon, cutting, deceiving, and devouring the truth. So is so really the tongue that powerful? Well, James seems to think so. It was James who wrote, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. Doeg's tongue set on fire by hell to purposely strike an inferno that consumed the innocent people of the town of Nob. His tongue was just as furious and bloody as his swordplay, which cut down hundreds of innocent people. His wicked deeds and his wicked tongue were just the natural outworkings of his wicked heart. For Doeg, in verse 3, remember, he said, I love evil more than good, and he loved falsehood more than speaking what is right. David emphasized the depth of Doeg's dark heart, adding selah, which means pause and consider. So first we looked at David call out the perversion of Doeg in word and deed. Then we looked at how David calls out. Now we'll look at how David calls for the punishment of Doeg in verse 5. Now, verse 5 is an imprecatory verse, meaning David is calling for divine punishment to come upon Doeg for his wickedness. There are in Scripture imprecatory psalms, prayers, and verses. Now, the word imprecate means to invoke calamity, judgment, and curses upon one's enemy or those perceived as enemies of God. And clearly, that's what David does in verse 5. Just listen. He says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living Selah. David is saying Doeg is a wicked, withering tree that God will bring his perfect divine justice to. Through this flurry of violent images in verse 5, to convey his point, destruction is coming. First, God will break down Doeg, suggesting he'll be demolished. Then God will snatch Doeg up, suggesting by the verb an extinguishing of a coal, Then God will tear Doeg from his tent, suggesting extraction from a dwelling. And finally and decisively, God will uproot Doeg as a wicked tree, taking his very life. This is very graphic, but God's justice is perfect and just. And again, David adds Selah, pause and consider, emphasizing the serious matter of the judgment of the wicked. And notice that David's faith is not in himself to enact this vengeance and destruction, but faith in the sovereignty of God, in the justice of God. So we've seen the demise of the withering tree of the wicked, symbolic of Doeg. Next point two in your outline, the flourishing faith of the faithful, the flourishing tree of the faithful, symbolic of David. And that's verses 6 through 8. We see a great contrast here, a great distinction between the wicked man and the faithful righteous man. First we see in verses 6 and 7, it is for the sake of the righteous that God acts against the wicked, as David states. He says, "So that the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, "Behold the man who would not set God as his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his destruction." So the response of the wicked of the righteous to witnessing the destruction of the wicked is to first fear the Lord, which is the most natural reaction to divine judgment. But then this sense of being awestruck at the power of God is followed by laughter, even rejoicing at the object of the judgment, surely realizing this judgment was for their benefit. They will rejoice not only as they see the ultimate deliverance of the righteous, but they're going to rejoice seeing the perfect justice coming to those who brought great harm to others. And the perfect justice coming to those who would not rely on God as their strength, but rather... Put all their trust in their abundance of their riches, as verse 7 indicates. David trusted in the perfect, pure judgment of God on Doeg. Remember back in Psalm 51, David declared, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Judgment always comes to those like Doeg, who are seduced by the world to gain the pleasures of this world, not knowing that's the closest to heaven they will ever get. David indicating at the end of verse 7 that the wicked will not be shaken from their commitment to their false refuge of wealth, describing them as being strong in their destruction. Strong in their destruction. If you've ever witnessed up close and personal the death of an unbelieving loved one who rebelled all the way to the end, you know how just, just how tragic this is when to their dying breath, they remain committed to themselves, they remain committed to their own strength, to their own riches, and ultimately to their own destruction. It's heartbreaking. But David, the righteous man, the faithful man of God, on the other hand, says, I am strong in the house of God, and I trust not in riches, I trust in him. Look at verse 8. This is really the turning point of, our, 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 uh, of Psalm 52. He says, but as for me, I am like a green olive tree. In the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. What a contrast here. The withering tree of the wicked. Here David comparing himself. Contrast to the withering tree of the wicked. David compares himself to one of the longest living trees in the Middle East. Which is green and full sap. The here. here is of a healthy tree. Firmly rooted. Not destined to be broken down. Snatched up. Uprooted. Not a chance because this tree is firmly planted in the house of God. The metaphor here is unmistakable. Doeg planted in the wicked world. David planted in the house of God. One is lost and will be uprooted and destroyed. The other is firm and healthy and under the providence and protection of God in his house. Is that not what the heart of every believer longs for? That one day we will find our place forever in the house of God. The sojourner finally comes home for good. Out of the world of destruction. To find refuge and care and the loving kindness of our creator. The contrast here of the two trees between wicked Doeg and the righteous David is reminiscent of Psalm 1. Which reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. "...nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, in its season. and its leaves, leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment." Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The final point of distinction David makes is who he trusts in. We know that Doeg trusts in his own strength, in his own riches, but who does David trust in? Look at the end of verse 8. David says, I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. In David, we see that because God's steadfast love is eternal. We should, our, so should our trust in him also be eternal. David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not seek revenge, but I shall trust in his loving kindness. I shall not hunger, I shall not thirst, but I shall trust in his loving kindness. Finally, in verse nine, we see from David the only proper response to such grace from God, and that's devotion. He says, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will hope on your name, for it is good in the presence of your holy ones. Now, the verb for give you thanks here means publicly acknowledge, publicly give you thanks. David is saying, I publicly thank you for my righteousness, for my faithfulness. I'm not the deceitful, devouring, destructive Doeg who will be uprooted. I am the trusting, I am the faithful, I am the hopeful David who is planted in the house of God forever. Why? Please don't miss this. David says, because you have done it. It is not by my will, but your will, Lord. Sadly, the sovereign will of the Lord is a lost doctrine in evangelicalism today, replaced by the precious libertarian free will of man, as Matt pointed out two weeks ago. Scripture is consistent with this sovereign providential will of God always being the active agent. James 1 Echoes the sentiment of David that God has done all of it. When it says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It was in the exercise of his will, he brought David forth. It was in the exercise of his will that Doeg was devoted to destruction. Finally, David ends his psalm with hope, saying, And I will hope on your name, for it is good in the presence of your Holy One. David has just said, I thank you, Yahweh. I trust you, Yahweh. Now I hope in you, Yahweh. And it is hope upon the name of the Lord, for it is good. Understand that the Hebrew way of thinking to trust in the name of God is to trust in the revealed nature of God, to trust in the attributes of God, and to trust in the divine works of God. In contrast, remember Doeg in verse 3, loved evil more than good, but David places all his gratitude, all his trust, in all his hope in the precious name of Yahweh, for it is good. Psalm 20 records, Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with a saving might of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. And as the final line of the psalm says, It is all for a witness. It's a witness in the presence of the saints. It reads, In the presence of your holy ones. David's gratitude to God, his trust in God, and his hope in God was not to be done in a corner, but rather in what? The presence of believers. To encourage and edify his fellow saints, that they too may join him in devotion to the Lord. It's so encouraging here, isn't it? To see David emerge from the deep well of agony. He's not bitter, he's not rejected, he's not dejected, he's not angry. Remember, he's the God-anointed king of Israel, yet he's a fugitive on the run, hunted down, abandoned by those closest to him, estranged from his family, then the slaughter of so many innocents at the hands of evil. Yet here we find David thankful, trusting, hopeful in the midst of the darkest days of his life. Clearly, David has only been strengthened through the discipline and instruction of the Holy Spirit. We can see that the testing of David's faith has brought about what? perseverance. And that perseverance was doing its perfect work in David, making him complete. We can see God blessing and preserving David through these dark times. And we can see David respond with gratitude, trust, and hope in Yahweh. I mean, that's the takeaway for us this morning, isn't it? That as God's people, we can learn from David not to despair when the wicked oppose us, For God will deal with our enemies in time. We we need to live in gratitude, trust, and hope in him. For he will preserve us and he will bless us. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the, the Mount are illustrative of this. When he says, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you when the wicked oppose you. Matthew 5 records, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. David here in Psalm 52 was not despaired by the persecutions of this wicked world, whether it be from King Saul or Doeg, but rather he turned to the Father. And Jesus Christ was never despaired by the persecutions of this wicked world, but he also turned where? To the Father. Can we do no less? But it's worth asking, what was the one thing that David and Jesus did despair over? It wasn't the persecutions of this world. It was a sinfulness of sin. David was a over his own sin. We saw that over the last two weeks in Psalm 51, didn't we? And, David, and, and did David's brokenness over his sin, did that please the Father? Yes. Remember last week from Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus was also despaired by taking on sin, my sin, your sin, and David's sin. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, when he saw the cross coming, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And did the crushing of the Savior for your sins, did that please the Father? Isaiah 53, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Should you not also be broken over your sin? May God have mercy on if you are not. For your sin is an offense to the Trinity. For it took the combined decree and the work of the Godhead in perfect unity to save you from your sins and to reconcile you to Him. That's how serious your sin is. Goliath couldn't back down David. The armies of the Philistines couldn't back down David. A wicked Doeg and King Saul, they couldn't back down David. But you know what backed down David? His own sin. Before a holy and righteous God. His sin turned a warrior king. Into a weeping puddle before God. His heart melted over his transgressions. King David knew how dreadful his sin was. But he also knew the freedom. Of forgiveness from that sin. Remember from Psalm 51. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. So. Sin dominates David's soul in Psalm 51, while it is the faith of a forgiven man that dominates David's soul in Psalm 52. In David's life, we see in living color those twin graces of redemption, of redemption which are repentance and faith. For without true repentance and faith being granted to David and to each one of us, in our regeneration, we would still be in our sins. And like Doeg, hell would be our lot. No one gets saved from their sins apart from true repentance and faith. If we could fetch Doeg out of hell right now and set him back upon this earth, you know what he would do? He would send himself immediately back into hell. And so would you. And so would I. Apart apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit granting us supernatural repentance and granting us supernatural faith. For hell is a place, guess what, void of faith. And hell is a place void of repentance. Jesus said it was a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, guess what, weeping, because it's a place where faith is dead. There's no faith in hell. There's not an ounce of hope in hell because there is zero chance of redemption for all eternity. And gnashing of teeth because the rebellious, unrepentant heart grows darker and darker, blaspheming and lashing out at God. It's a terrifying place, and it's terrifying to think that anyone in here at the sound of my voice would spend eternity there instead of with us in heaven for eternity. And that's why we plead each week to not neglect God's call to grant you divinely sent repentance and divinely sent faith For if you do neglect his call, your place for eternity will be the same as the Doegs and the Hitlers and the monsters of this world. So we plead with you to die to yourself. Die to your pride. Die to your self-righteousness. For you're only condemning yourself. You're building up and heaping up wrath for the day of wrath. Unless you give it all up this morning. Repent and put all your faith and trust In Jesus Christ and escape forever the bondage of the lost and be joined to the freedom of the saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this message, this example from David. We know we're going to face this wicked world and they will come at us, but you have shown us through this text, Lord, how to respond in faith in our Lord and the loving kindness of our Lord, the steadfast love of our Lord that he can handle this. And we put all our faith and trust in him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.